everyone, and welcome back to our series of podcasts focusing on international employment law. I'm Amy Murray, Senior Counsel and Employment Team at Travis Smith, and this time I'm joined by Tim Gilbert, a partner on the team. You may remember that in these podcasts, we're speaking to friends from law firms in a variety of jurisdictions and asking them about the key employment law issues and the things to think about when employing staff in their country. For each jurisdiction, we're doing three short podcasts, one covering the start of employment, the second covering the end of employment, and the final one covering other key aspects of employment law for their jurisdiction. And today we're speaking to Atul Gupta, the head of employment law at Tri-Legal in India. Tri-Legal is a top tier full service law firm with an outstanding labor and employment practice. Welcome Atul. Thank you so much, Ali. Very nice to be participating in this podcast with you all. Wonderful. So in this first podcast, as usual, we'll be looking at the start of employment and I'll hand over to Tim to start us off. Great, thanks very much, Ailey. So, um, Atul, starting employment, what are the key things to think about from an employment law perspective when advertising vacancies in India? So, Tim, before I get into any detail on this, right, it's important to have some more context around the legislative landscape in India. There are currently over 200 central and state laws that govern a host of subjects under the overall umbrella of employment laws, right? These could be from conditions of employment, social security, health and safety, welfare, trade unions, labor disputes, working hours, leave entitlements, terminations of employment, et cetera, right? On top of this, laws vary between individual states in India, as well as the nature of the industries involved. For example, if you're a factory, you'd have a separate set of laws. If you're a typical commercial office, you would have separate set of laws that govern. Now, despite that, if you are looking to hire people in India, frankly, right? There are no central or statutory agencies or legislation which currently regulate the advertising of vacancies in India, right? Now, I'd like to state that there is a special statute which requires employers to advertise uh, certain vacancies with the government-run employment exchange, right? But that's more of a facilitator to, to invite applications from, from various candidates for open positions. It doesn't really lay down any guidelines as to how those vacancies have to be advertised. So broadly speaking, while advertising vacancies, employers can require applicants to provide all such information as they deem necessary to be relevant to that role in question, right? Uh, employment laws or other laws in India do not expressly restrict employers from seeking personal information from a prospective employee, for example, age, education, qualifications, nationality, marital status, past criminal records, et cetera, right? Now, what we generally advise is to avoid any such data collection being perceived as discriminatory in nature. The purpose and objectives behind collecting such data should be made clear upfront, right? When you're advertising vacancies and, and inviting applications from candidates. Now, uh, the one other caveat over here to, to bear in mind is uh, under Indian uh, data privacy rules, and that's a very limited regime today, any collection of sensitive personal information, which is uh, information regarding someone's sexual orientation, medical history, any kind of financial information or information regarding their mental health, etc., uh, can only be collected with due consent and with uh, clear uh, indications as to what that information is going to be used for, right? So it's common practice and advisable that while you are trying to seek out this kind of data, uh, it be made clear as to why this data is being collected and for what purposes. So 
the idea should be that you should not your advertising should not stand out as being uh, or appearing to be one's designed to negatively discriminate against a particular set of individuals so i would not recommend that you put out an advertisement inviting candidates only of a particular gender let's say to apply for a job so that's a very broad perspective on what organizations need to be thinking about when they are advertising vacancies in India. Great, great. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. And and is there in the context of the sort of interviewing process, is there anything that employers should avoid asking job candidates in India? Absolutely. So, you know, this brings me to the point I raised around, you know, how you should not be perceived as being discriminatory in nature, right? At a fundamental level, the constitution of India prohibits discrimination on the grounds of religion, race, caste, sex, descent, place of birth or residence. Right? Now, these rules are, are designed to apply to the state and the government. But it's a common practice that private employers in India also follow these constitutional principles. Right? So keeping aside the fact that you don't want to ask questions around things like race, past, etc. There are also some specific laws that you need to bear in mind, right? So in India, historically, there used to be a practice of untouchability, which was abolished by special laws, right? So you should not seek information regarding someone's caste or whether they belong to a particular scheduled caste or scheduled tribe as defined by law, because that can be viewed as discriminatory in nature, correct? Uh, there is a special law known as the HIV Act, uh, whereby employers are prohibited from discriminating against HIV-positive persons or persons who have lived with an HIV-positive individual, right? including denial of employment or termination of employment or any form of other unfair treatment to them on these grounds. So you wouldn't inquire about these types of details from candidates. Right? Uh, apart from that, India has laws dealing with uh, with prevention of discrimination against women in recruitment and in ensuring payment of equal wages to them. Uh, there also are laws regarding prevention of discrimination against people with disabilities, right? So again, these wouldn't be the areas where I would try and elicit information from candidates because those could potentially be viewed as, uh, as pointing at some form of express or implied discrimination that a person may have. Uh, right now, there are also relatively newer laws against uh, discrimination uh, for transgender persons. Right. So while it's common to generally seek out information about a person's gender, you wouldn't try and focus around uh, such a sensitive topic in any kind of conversation with a candidate. So, so those were the types of areas that I would normally recommend that employers stay away from. Uh, while they are viewing candidates or seeking information from candidates uh, as part of the hiring process, because these can be sensitive areas. And unless and until you make your objectives and purpose for seeking out such data explicitly clear, right, and, and clarify the, the purpose for it, right, uh, they have the tendency to be misconstrued. Uh, so, so that's that's something that I would not typically recommend that an employer get into. That makes that makes sense, and it's not not too dissimilar from the UK, where you know you just avoid asking any questions to do with kind of protected characteristics. 
And so we often see employers want to carry out um, background checks or employee screening before they hire someone. Is that is that permitted or is that usual practice in India? Yeah, most certainly. In fact, it's a very common practice in India for both the applicants to provide professional and educational references right, to the prospective employers and for prospective employers to carry out uh, background checks of varying kinds. Right? Most large corporations today will actively uh, carry out background and reference checks on applicants who are being considered for recruitment. Uh, while there's no specific law that governs background checks comprehensively. Uh, we have seen organizations conduct background checks on matters like education qualifications, uh, pre-employment health checks, financial or credit checks, uh, criminal record checks, etc. Right? Now, the nature of the checks that you would typically want to carry out would also be dependent on the nature of your organization and the role and the profile of which a candidate is being considered. Now, as a general precaution, what we recommend is that candidates be informed upfront that uh, background checks will be conducted and that their uh, employment with the organization is dependent on a positive outcome, right? Uh, even if those checks are ultimately carried out discreetly, right? Uh, and because, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, collection of certain forms of data, uh, if it's sensitive, personal in nature, would require consent. It's generally advisable that uh, any any documentation, advertising positions, or any offers of employment that are laid uh, ruled out are explicitly written up to inform and seek consent of employee of candidates that such data might be collected, it might be used for background checks, it might be shared with third parties and professional vendors within India or maybe even outside to help facilitate and carry out such checks. Uh, now, on a practical level, uh, we get asked very often, you know, what's generally the ability for organizations to conduct these checks and what sort of uh, facilitation is there from the government for it, right? Now, so this tends to vary based on location in India. For example, if you want to conduct a criminal background check, right? In some states, the police authorities have uh, facilitated this and they you know, actively offer police verification certificates to check a candidate's criminal records. But however, again, these checks are typically limited to the, to the local police station level where the applicant might be residing, right? If you want to carry out a more comprehensive check, you might have to go to multiple police stations and carry out checks wherever they, the candidate might have resided in the past. And you might not always have that information completely. The government has tried to try and make things a little bit easier for organizations. It's uh, launched a national portal where, you know, individuals and employers can register and, and sort of lodge specific requests for uh, verifying antecedents. Uh, beat of employees and you know and this of course uh, expands to other people like you know you might be wanting to uh, lease out a place to a tenant etc so you can use this for for multiple purposes but um, you know this is still a, a fledgling system i don't think it's been fully integrated uh, in in terms of its presence for the country one other point or rather two other points i want to point uh, sort of flag here from my experiences uh, very often organizations ask what's our ability to do sort of social media uh, 
checks or digital fingerprint or online activity checks right now uh, we think again this is something which uh, is fairly common to do and there isn't really any statutory rule or prohibition around it so long as you are accessing uh, public data right uh, uh, no prior consent is even necessary right but like i said it's important that employees or candidates be told that the uh, various checks will be considered and carried out uh, to assess their suitability for a, for an organization or for a particular role uh, which brings me to the second point i was raising that uh, india does not have a regime of actual employment right so uh, if you were to proceed to hire somebody before actually concluding their background checks right then your ability to terminate them let's say if that background check is not to your satisfaction eventually uh, could be a little bit more harder than to to structure your engagement process in a manner where employment only begins after the background checks have been completed now practically that might not always be possible to do many organizations are in a are in a hurry to hire good candidates and and are happy to sort of push out those checks to a later point of time but you then need to be careful about the fact that if somebody has already commenced their employment relationship with you and uh, you eventually discover that they have misrepresented some information to you or you know the background checks are not to your satisfaction the process to terminate them could be a little bit more uh, cumbersome you might have to give them ability to explain all of what your findings are uh, and you know certain rules of national justice might apply that all makes sense um that's that's really helpful and yes your point about the um social media those kind of checks are um increasingly i think more increasingly common for employers aren't they and employees definitely need to be aware of that one other thing is um uh what about recruiting um employees from competitors does that give rise to any issues for employers yeah i think this this is a, a fairly nuanced subject right which uh, needs to be examined based on whether there are any at two levels essentially one is whether there are any contractual limitations that apply to the recruiter slash employer itself for example maybe a non solicit provision in a commercial contract with another with another entity right uh, which which prevent let's say company a from soliciting the employees or staff of of another company right company b or it might also depend on whether the restrictions that we're talking about right uh, for example a non compete apply to the candidate alone as part of his or her employment agreement with the current employer right so so i think it's important to talk about both those situations here now if you were to look at the first situation if there are contractual arrangements in place right let's say with non solicit obligations then uh, and if the employer is subject to such a restriction then hiring staff from that other entity which may or may not be a competitor per se would expose it to the risk of claims of violation of such contract provisions right now of course whether the counterparty would be eventually entitled to relief or not is very fact specific right it would depend on whether there was actual affirmative solicitation or whether you know the hiring was done based on some public advertisements etc but uh, if there are no contractual restrictions which sort of prevent you from soliciting someone else right uh, someone else's employees 
then uh, the risks of hiring uh, even maybe from a competitor might be comparatively low. Uh, the, the general uh, issue to sort of be aware of over here is if let's say you're doing hiring on a slightly larger scale where you're let's say hiring large teams from, from a competing organization, you might still be subject to, to claims for, for matters such as tortious interference. Now, as you know, this is essentially a principle in tort where the affected company would claim that the poaching company is interfering in its business by hiring a significant number of its employees, right? To the extent that that interference is now amounting to an offense of tort, right? Uh, which is a civil wrong. Now, so that is a risk. We do see that happen, happen sometimes uh, when we are advising our clients where uh, they need to be mindful about you know, especially if they're hiring from people within the same industry and competitors, uh, how many people they're hiring from a particular competitor? Is that something that could be perceived as, as interference in their business, etc.? Now, the jurisprudence on this is not very, very detailed in India. Uh, there are few judgments really which have sort of upheld this principle and therefore there is a generally high bar to prove tortious interference, but again, something you need to be mindful of. Now, if there are no contractual limitations between the organizations itself, right, the employer uh, whom the candidate is leaving and the, and the company which is trying to hire it, him, uh, right, there might still be uh, provisions in that candidate's employment contract itself, right, in the nature of a non-compete provision, uh, which prevent him or her from taking up employment with the competitor. Now, it must be noted that in India, post-separation non-compete provisions aren't really enforceable, right? They are considered to be in restraint of trade. And to that extent, the risk of hiring such a candidate, right, is, is less legal and more practical. Now, the previous employer whom the person is quitting from could threaten to bring claims for breach of contract against the departing employee nonetheless, right? essentially to deter them from joining a competitor. And they could also then choose to include the competing entity whom they want to join in any such proceedings, right? Uh, they might potentially argue that uh, the new uh, employer is inducing a breach of the contract by hiring him despite knowing that, uh, you know, there is a, a non-compete provision that they are potentially violating. Now, because non-compete provisions in India are fundamentally not enforceable, these claims may not eventually succeed, but uh, employers need to be mindful of the possibility of such uh, disputes being raised and, you know, the nuisance value that comes from trying to then defend yourself right? and, and to defend your hiring decision. So what we've typically seen is that clients would balance the risk of, you know, such potential disputes and claims arising against their desire to hire a strong candidate, right? even if that candidate is maybe subject to an express non-compete clause, right? Before they decide how to, to proceed. Apart from this, as a general precaution, it must be ensured that any candidate uh, that you're looking to hire expressly agrees not to bring or use any prior employer confidential information or intellectual property with them. Because a violation of these types of provisions can certainly create uh, actionable claims have been implemented, right, including claims for damages. That's great, Atul. That, that's all very interesting. Just, just a quick question on the um, 
on the restrictive covenant uh, piece. I, I, I note your point that um, obviously very difficult to look to enforce them um, under the jurisprudence, but do you, do you still tend to see them anyway in contracts? You know, would you, would you typically open up a, uh, an employee's contract you're being asked to advise on and see some restrictions in there, or is it quite unusual to see them? Uh, Tim, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that uh, our jurisprudence has been fairly consistent that non-compete provisions are due to be in restraint of trade, right? And there are very limited exceptions to this, uh, which are very less have less to do with employment law but more to do with you know deals and and sale of business and goodwills right but uh, our jurisprudence has been fairly consistent on consistent on this and despite that uh, our experience has been that most organizations today would typically include a non-compete provision uh, along with certain you know blue pencil clauses etc to sort of carve out uh, any unenforceable provisions and, and prevent the entire contract from falling but yeah. it's fairly common to see such provisions still being included in, in contracts, uh, largely because of the deterrent they might have. Right? And as I said, you know, it might cause people to pause and think that, okay, do I really want to violate this provision and maybe invite the, the hassle of defending myself, which takes time, effort, and cost, right? Or do I want to maybe steer clear of a competitor for the next six to 12 months, right? And avoid this kind of uh, a nuisance. Uh, and what I have seen is that the, the nature and the extent of these non-competes tends to vary. Uh, so I won't say that you would find such non-competes in, in contracts of all employees across all levels, but uh, it's fairly common to see this in, in contracts for, uh, you know, key personnel, uh, you know, people with, access to significant confidential information or those who are generating intellectual property, uh, knowledge workers, right? So it's fairly common to see. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Thank you. Um, and so just flowing on from the question of um, contracts. So take us back to recruitment. Um, you've, you've identified your candidate, you've done your background checks, um, and you've got your, your chosen individual. What, what do businesses in India need to think about uh, in relation to documenting the terms of that employment? Yeah, so Tim, in, in India, you know, technically contracts don't always have to be in writing. Right? They could be expressed or implied even, you know, by the very fact of you starting to receive services from someone and, and paying them. But I rarely see that happen other than maybe few limited industries where, you know, lower level blue-collar workers are, are sometimes engaged with our contracts. The general practice is, and our advice is to, to ex execute robust contracts, right? In fact, in few Indian states, you will also find that the local labor laws, the Shops Act, do require employers to issue a written appointment letter. Now, the various considerations that you would put into such a contract would be things like, firstly, whether it's an open-ended contract or whether it's a fixed-term contract, right? Both contracts could work in India. Uh, the other factors that you would want to typically address carefully is uh, matters of compensation, right? Uh, how wages are structured can be a very important element of these agreements. In India, uh, minimum wages are 
are usually fixed for different skills and occupations and vary from location to location. They are revised continually. There are several benefits that you need to, to pay to employees on top of wages like provident funds, statutory bonuses, all of which depend on, on factors such as, you know, the location of work, the nature of work, the wages that they're earning. Now, so it can be a very important element to carefully structure the, the compensation uh, in, 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 your, in your agreements, right? Uh, what elements are, are fixed? What elements are potentially discretionary? Uh, what elements might require the employee to make a contribution from their pocket? And therefore, there could be deductions, right? Uh, this is one of the most crucial elements that you would want to be addressed in your contract. And also build in some level of flexibility to ensure that, you know, you have some leeway around making adjustments to that if, if required. Uh, apart from this, I think few other elements which uh, are, are fairly important, apart from, you know, uh, of course, provisions like robust confidentiality provisions, uh, intellectual property provisions, right? Uh, because... Uh, while it's possible that, you know, uh, confidentiality is implied in an employer-employer relationship, it's important to make sure that you are clearly defining that the duration is not just during the employment, even, but it, it carries on even beyond the employment, right? Uh, it's important to sort of build out uh, uh, clear provisions as to what remedies you might want to exercise in case there are breach of these provisions, right? So, uh, similarly for intellectual property, while certain forms of intellectual property like copyrights, bylaw, uh, meant to uh, belong to the employer, right? That might not necessarily be true for all other forms of intellectual property. So you need to have clear and uh, unambiguous assignment of intellectual property uh, rights to the employer in your contract. So, so apart from these, which I would say are, are fairly more well understood and, and common to see, right? Uh, there are certain other specific nuances that you might want to address as a matter of local law. So, for example, in India, various state and central laws lay out what are typical working hours, right? And what are the implications if someone exceeds or works beyond those, those working hours? Are they entitled to overtime pay? Now, in many industries, we see overtime is not really a, an established concept uh, because those industries pay fairly well to their employees, right? And they don't want to then uh, sort of be in a position where they're tracking every minute of work and then they're offering double wages if, if you know someone works beyond the stipulated date on INRs. So now if you want to structure your policies and practices in that manner, then it's important to call out these types of provisions in your contract, right? Now whether they're enforceable or not will really be a specific assessment depending on the level of the employee, what they earn, what they roles and responsibilities are, but these are the types of things that you want to necessarily clarify in your contract, correct? Uh, by law, there are also certain requirements that have to be met. Uh, so, for example, the Indian Maternity Benefit Act makes it mandatory for employers to, to inform employees of women, of, of course, of what maternity benefits they have under this law that has to be communicated to them in writing at the time of employment. And that's therefore typically just included in your contracts or attached with as a separate policy with the contract that you're giving to the employees right now. These maternity benefits vary based on whether it's you're delivering a child, whether you're adopting a child, whether you're going down the surrogacy route or you know you have other complications associated with, with maternity. There are different levels of entitlements, correct? Right? 
the the two other things that i would very strongly recommend putting into your contracts are provisions around termination uh, in india terminations can not always be carried out as easily as one might want them to be uh, there are special rules that might apply under uh, certain laws like the industrial disputes act for a certain protected category of workers like following the last in first out principle and if you want to avoid uh being caught with those type of rules you need to have then specific call outs in your contract that these principles will not apply right you need to call out specifically what type of notice periods would apply what rights you might have as an employer uh to terminate what rights you might have if someone were to resign right so these are very important to call out because in the absence of clear provisions there can be several uh ambiguities and disputes which are fairly avoidable right with good structuring of the arrangements uh i've talked briefly about non competes uh, earlier uh, to your previous question but uh, restrictive covenants are are also very commonly included in contracts and while non competes don't necessarily work in india other form of restrictions such as non solicit provisions are perfectly valid and enforceable right so you would want to necessarily build in those types of provisions into your contracts as well so thank you at all for taking us through the various issues at the start of employment um and please all do join us for the next podcast where we'll be covering the end of employment mm-hmm.